Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. We saw uh, prior a Sabbath function that was going on where Jesus was critical of the hearts that were participating there. He warns them to check their hearts and their motives, and ultimately they're standing before God with respect to salvation, of course. In chapter 15 today, he shifts gears. He reaches out to the undesirables of society. And, of course, that word is a societal word. Obviously, when God looks at us, he doesn't see who's better, who's worse. He sees us all with love, but he also sees us all as those that have committed sin and broken his law. So, unfortunately, people do look at other people in society this way, undesirables, what have you, and that's really a sinful perspective. But Jesus encourages their hearts to turn to God as he is waiting for them as a loving and expectant father. And we see this in the parables today of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the prodigal son. Jesus humbles the aristocrats in Luke 14, but exalts the lowly in Luke 15. We've talked before about hell and judgment were appropriate, but here in this scripture today, we're going to get to rejoice in the teachings of God's great love, mercy, and patience towards all individuals if they will have him. If you've come here today a little down on your life, down on your past, down on some of your mistakes, I think today's going to be a treat for you because we're going to see some of God's greatest attributes in this scripture. So verse 1, it says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So again, you have a transition from Jesus eating in chapter 14 with the upstanding of society to eating with these people, Uh, now in chapter 15. Of course, Jesus loved both groups. Jesus would have fellowshiped with anybody. They were all his uh, creation, and he wants us all to be reconciled back to him. But in that culture, they're they're lambasting him in in a sense because in that culture, if you eat, if you ate with a person or group, it meant that you were identifying with them. So the mere fact that Jesus is seen eating with sinners, whether it be tax collectors, prostitutes, Gentiles, meant he was guilty by association, according to that culture. We can look at our communion that way, too, but in a good way. When we, ultimately, the way that communion was performed was there would be loaves and people would partake, break apart a piece of bread from the same loaf. Not only were we identifying with Christ and remembering him, but also when we partake of the same loaf, we identify with each other. So when you take communion, the person sitting next to you is your brother, okay? So we identify with each other. And that's why, if you remember, those of you who are familiar with Galatians, in Galatians chapter 2, Peter, the apostle Peter, was eating with the Gentile brothers until the Jewish brothers came. And then he felt uncomfortable because he didn't want to offend them, so he walked away from the Gentiles, you know, so he wouldn't offend the, the Jewish brothers. And Paul finds out about this, and he rebukes him because he said Peter played the hypocrite. And, of course, Peter made mistakes, but he he got better over time. But the difference between Peter and Jesus was Jesus broke down walls. Jesus was not going to allow his behavior to be dictated by societal norms. And here his message to these people are, hey, God doesn't care what you did in the past. He's willing to take you in with open arms if you'll have him. And this whole chapter hinges on that premise. And, of course, we see the application for us today in our society. Verse 3, it says, So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness 
and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Shepherding is probably as foreign to us as milking a cow, but these people were quite familiar with that profession. The average number of sheep in a flock for a shepherd was about 100, and if a sheep strayed, it wouldn't be long before it became injured or devoured by predators because this type of animal really can't survive on their own. They needed to be taken care of by, by a human. So every night, the shepherds would, sh- would count sheep, so probably they fell asleep pretty easily. I couldn't resist. Just wanted to see if you were awake. Thank you. And over time, the, uh, some of you took a little while to get it, but that's okay. Over time, the shepherd knew the distinct bleating of his own sheep. Being with sheep all day and all night, uh, as their, their cries were different, he would understand and know the different tones of their voice and the way they look different, and he would know their individuality. In the same way, God knows his sheep which is us, by name, the Bible says. He knows us individually, and he knows every hair on our heads. In verse 7, it says, Jesus says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. The Bible tells us of the possibility of two births and two deaths, a physical and spiritual birth and a physical and spiritual death. And what we're looking at here is the rejoicing in the second birth. And that's, you know, in in John chapter 3, people say, well, are you one of those born-agains? And you have to explain to people what that means. You know, they think you're weird or in some type of a cult. But you just take them to John chapter 3. Jesus has a conversation with one of the great teachers of Israel, a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is wondering, you know, how how do you get into heaven? And Jesus says, assuredly, I say to you, unless you were born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's confused, this teacher. And he goes, well, how do you end up in your mother's womb a second time? And he explains that it's a spiritual rebirth. So the Bible says that we're all children of wrath prior to the second birth. We're in spiritual darkness. And if you're taking notes, Ephesians 2, 3 and 2 Corinthians 4, 4 explain that. Every day there's a battle in the spiritual places fought for our souls. And every time one One person is one to Christ. There's great rejoicing in heaven. If you look at Psalm 23, it's something that's commonly read at a funeral, but did you ever take that apart and take it line by line and see what it means? The Lord is my shepherd. The parable of the divine shepherd. God is our shepherd. We're sheep to him. Uh, As sheep, as the shepherd rejoices in finding his sheep, the Lord God rejoices when one straying sheep comes back to the fold. So from here, Jesus moves to the parable of the lost coin, basically to reinforce this notion of being returned back to God. So verse 8, it says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the piece which was lost. Now, this could be referring to either a, a headband or a necklace that uh, Jewish women would wear back then denoting marriage. It was almost like a wedding ring. And there was ten coins that were strung together to make this, pe- this article of jewelry. And it would have great sentimental value affixed to it. So even one coin that got lost, it, it wouldn't be complete without that one coin. Sort of like how 
each one of us individually, there's, there's a, a sentimental value affixed to us when it comes to God. He doesn't want to lose any one of us. You know, just one of us is missing. It, it's, 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 um, it's sad to him. But these, all these coins being in place could represent the ideal spiritual marriage between the creator and his creatures. All those that will come to him have come. That's the significance of all those ten coins. So the fact that this woman had nine coins didn't put her heart at ease. She did everything within her power to find that last coin. And 1 Timothy 2.4 says that God desires that all mankind will be saved. And in verse 10 it says, Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Similar to the shepherd finding that one sheep is the same thing with this woman finding that last coin. In both previous examples, we see that God actively looks for the lost. In John 12:32, Jesus said, And if I am lifted up, speaking of his crucifixion, I draw all peoples to myself. And also, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned and everything started to change, one of the first events that took place after that was Adam and Eve hid from God. And he said, Adam, where are you? Now, does that mean that God couldn't see past the brush and he couldn't find Adam? No. It means that he was, Adam, where are you? Something's changed. Where's your heart, right? I long for that fellowship we once enjoyed, unfettered and uninterrupted. So the question is, for those people who have uh, walked closely with God and then all of a sudden they see that there's there's a gap now between you and the Lord, a backsliding, so to speak. Is that you? Or are you completely unfamiliar with God? Well, I don't really know God. I don't, I'm trying to understand who God is as my father. Well, God may be calling you with this message. And the question is, will you heed this call? It's, it's not me. It's the word of God. Just like with the parable of the soils. That is a, a message that draws people to God. And some of the scripture, man, it just really it gets into your heart once you start reading it. But in the next parable, even the secular world is familiar with the prodigal son. And prodigal just means wastefulness. Jesus crescendos this truth about God's forgiveness, love, and acceptance for anyone who will repent of their sin and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Verse 11. Then he said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. So you see, the father, of course, represents God in this parable. And he has two sons. And we'll see what each son represents as we go through the story. The younger son. Now, what can we learn about the younger son's heart? Well, in that culture, a portion of a father's estate was divided. And it was usually only divided at the father's death. Right? So the son was presumptuous about taking his portion. This could have a representation of squandering God's love, provisions, or taking your life for granted. How many people go to bed at night and say, I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning. We go to bed, we think we're going to get up, we're going to feed the kids, go to work, do our thing. Every night it's the same thing. You go to bed and this is what you think of. Because if you thought that you weren't going to wake up in the morning, you probably wouldn't fall asleep. But we do, we take, we, even as Christians, we take our lives for granted that we have one more breath in our, in our, in our lungs, right? So we, we kind of do that. But also the son went to a far country. It kind of reminds me is that he's going away as far as possible to get away from his father. It reminds me of people that run from God. 
Did you ever think about, is anyone really an atheist? If you talk to somebody who claims to be an atheist and you talk to them long enough, you'll find that there's something in their past, whether it be a relationship or a death of a loved one, and they're angry with God. And they're going as far away from God as they possibly can. And if you present a good argument of how we didn't come about by accident, they get frustrated. It's because they, you know, they have a, an, an axe to grind with God. They're, they, they're harboring something against him. And there was actually a play called, the title was called, Your Arm's Too Short to Box with God. You know, you, you try to grind an axe with God, you end up losing. But the interesting thing is that I think about the, the group called the uh, American Civil Liberties Union, and I've spoken about them before. They're pretty, most of them, or if not all of them, are hardcore atheists. But the funny thing is, if God doesn't exist, let's go on that premise. God doesn't exist, and Christians are a bunch of fools. You know, we spend Sundays foolishly, and we could be spending it doing something else. But you have these people who, they don't believe that God exists, and they're spending millions of dollars, and they're spending so much hours in court trying to get God, who doesn't exist, off of a dollar bill. It's kind of futile. So really, they do believe in God. There's just a rebelliousness a rebellion against God. And you know what? We don't need to, again, marginalize these people, but we need to really pray for them because there's, you know, it would be better if they had, we had them on our side instead of fighting us in court all the time. But, you know, pray for these people. Also, people think the grass is greener on the other side. Uh, some people want to be prodigal sons and daughters. I live however I want. I want freedom. I, I don't want any rules. I want to be away from my parents, right? Well, didn't we see with the Pinocchio example last week that that wasn't true, those of you who were here? There was a girl who, uh, and a father who came into the police station a few months back. She was 16 years old. She was mature physically, but not really mentally. And uh, dad didn't know what to do because she was considering running away again. And she just wanted that freedom from her parents. But it's like God, you know, I remember seeing this, this pamphlet up in the detective bureau. It actually was a, like a booklet. It was well written, had pictures and everything. It was about missing and exploited children. And in, in the course of talking to the, the father and the daughter, I used that. And I explained to her that there's a possibility that one of these days that picture could be hers if she keeps living that life. Probably scared the daylights out of her, but it worked. So, But the truth is, often runaways, think about it, runaways. And the statistics are there in law, law enforcement. You can go onto the website of missing and exploited children. People who want that freedom from their parents, their teens, they, they think that the rules are too restrictive and mom and dad have all these uh, unreasonable expectations and they run away. You know where runaways end up in? Pornography, prostitution, addictions, and sometimes dead, or a combination of the previous. And that's a fact. The grass is not greener. And living however you want will enslave you to something eventually. Let me just read for you John 8:34 through 36. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Again, using the law enforcement background, I've talked to a lot of heroin addicts. And they, they take their first hit of heroin and it, it gives them this euphoria. And then they keep, I think it's called chasing a dragon, they keep trying to reproduce that hit of heroin. And each time it becomes more dangerous because what they do is here's that, that feeling, that, that euphoria that they feel, and here's death, and they're really close. And they have to make this one better and better, and they get closer and closer to death, and a lot of them overdose. So 
they, oh, I have freedom. I could, it's just a recreational drug. I'm not harming anyone. And they end up dying. They end up overdosing. Uh, there was uh, recently, a few months back, a, a really bad batch of heroin. It was mixed with fentanyl or something like that. And uh, people were dying all over the uh, United States from this heroin. But the people who were shooting the heroin knew about this. But because it was going to give them a better high, they wanted to try it. So, it, it's, you, you know, there's no freebies in life. Everything has a cost factor associated with it. What we think is freedom, what people think is freedom, is not freedom. It's going to enslave them, and they don't understand that. So on face value, you see the younger son running from his father, squandering his assets and leading a debauched lifestyle. Verse 14. It says, But when he spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. So hard times come around and all his assets are depleted. He doesn't have anything. And he has to take now a demeaning job to survive. The key here is that it often takes hardships to bring someone to where they need to be. Often coming face to face with your own mortality is what it takes for people to ponder eternity and think about salvation, right? And I've got to tell you, and this, this hurts, this is hard for people to hear, but we often want to intervene. We see loved ones that aren't saved, and we want to be that safety net all the time. But God is trying to do something. Sometimes you've got to let those people fall and let God do his work. There's a scripture that says, He who falls on the cornerstone, on the Christ, will be broken. But whom the cornerstone, the Son of God, falls on will be ground to powder. In the first instance, you fall, you fall, you fall. You get to the lowest point possible. And who's there to catch you? Jesus. And you're broken. You might think, well, that's a bad thing. No, it's not. Because he mends your wounds and he brings you back up to where you need to be. But if they go too far and the, and the, and the cornerstone falls on them, they're ground to powder. And when you're ground to powder, there's nowhere to go from there. So it, it, this is a hard message. It is. There's a lot of things that are going to come up here. But this is where this, this, the younger son, his sin, brought him. He comes to a place, a nice Jewish boy, he comes to a place where pigs are raised, right? Now, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, pigs were unclean to the Jews. You know, they weren't supposed to associate with pigs. And here this guy is slopping the pigs, and he's actually desiring to eat what they eat. He, he's, he's desiring to eat those pods that the pigs are eating. So this is where his sin brings him, all the way down, right? Verse 17, it says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Hardships lead him to repentance, not just remorse. And we saw that in the example with Judas. Judas was remorseful. I betrayed innocent blood. Take the 30 pieces of silver back. I don't want it. But he goes out and hangs himself. So he had remorse, but he didn't go all the way to repentance like Peter did. Peter denied the Lord too. But Peter repented, turned around, and look at what kind of pillar of the church he was, right? And how do I know that this guy was repentant? Because he does something about it. He takes action. It's the saving faith that James speaks about. It's not just lip service. A lot of people do this. You know, it's not just lip service. It's saving faith. Too many talk the good talk, but they don't walk the walk. Second Corinthians 7.10. Second Corinthians 7.10. 
says this. Paul says, For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. You see the difference there. In in verse 17, we see that the younger son, the prodigal son, knows in his heart that his dad is a good man. Not only is dad's servants doing well, they're eating well, but they have bread to spare. And I'm here slopping these pigs, trying to eat some of their food, right? So he knows that dad takes good care even of his servants, much better than he's living right now. You know, the, the sad thing is, unfortunately, people malign God's character as an excuse to continue in their behavior. People do that. They know deep inside that God is good, but they malign his character. The more you can malign God's character, it frees you up to lead a sinful lifestyle. People lie so much that they believe their own lies, and then they're caught when they start believing their own lies. Verse 20, it says, And he arose and came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. This is a follow-through. A lot of people make the plans and say that they're going to do the right thing, and they don't do anything about it. You know, maybe he goes to his dad, and maybe he's waiting for his dad to say the first thing. No, this guy goes. He runs to his father, and he swallows his pride, and he realizes he probably will get scorned, although that doesn't happen here, and he, he does what he needs to do. Actions speak louder than words. Verse 22, it says, But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to be merry. They began to be merry. So the son had all this planned out. What happens as the son is trying to finish his confession? The father interrupts him, right? He doesn't let him finish. This is our father. All he needed to hear was the repentance of the son. But our father, once we repent and he knows our heart, All is forgotten from the east is to the west. He doesn't remember our sins. He has selective amnesia, so to speak. He's ready to bless us. But the sad thing is people carry guilt for years. And and I've met people who have a past and they they carry that guilt as if they they still need to to have that guilt. And they don't. Let it go. Because if God doesn't remember it, why should you remember it? I've also seen people hold... uh, Others pass against them, which is, and, and I've seen it in Christianity, which is really wicked. People who use it, I don't know, to hold people down or as a jealousy thing, but they'll bring it up in your face what you used to be. And that's wrong. If somebody's telling you that, they're in sin. Don't listen to them. Because if God doesn't remember it, you shouldn't remember it, and those people shouldn't be remembering it either. But the beauty of the God we serve in this passage is a represent, representation of his character. Romans 8.1 says, Now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. There's no condemnation and there's no vilification, only forgiveness, acceptance, and rejoicing. And back to the context of the story, Jesus shows these uptight religious leaders that God welcomes with open arms anyone who will repent of their sins and be reconciled back to the Father. The Father brings them a robe, a ring, sandals, And prepares a feast. All of these having symbolism of what? Of grace and restoration. That's the symbolism here. Each one of these items means something different. 
Not a grudging forgiveness, but really heartfelt, coupled with undeserved grace on top of it. It's one thing to forgive uh, for wrongs, but God also showers us with unmerited favor. And that's what the definition of grace is. The cool thing is, yesterday we were coming home from the picnic, and my son confessed to me that he did something wrong. And uh, I'm thinking, well, I could punish him. And my, his grandmother's sitting there. She goes, you better not have spanked him. <laughs> I'm thinking, I could punish him. And you know what's cool? I was almost pretty much done with the message. And I'm thinking, wow, what an object lesson. I said, Josiah, come here. We've got to talk. And he's like, what's dad doing? Are you going to punish me or what? And I'm like, I explained to him that you did something wrong, right? He said, yes. I said, you could be punished, right? He goes, yes. And I explained what the different range of punishments are. He goes, yes, I'm torturing the kid here. <laughs> Using him for my example, but I'm torturing him. So I said, you know what, Josiah? What do you want to do today? He goes, well, I want to go on the computer and play my science game. I said, okay, you're not getting punished. I'm going to let you go play on the computer and play your science game. And he looked at me like I was crazy. Is this my dad? No, I am very gracious to my son. But I did say to him, uh, do you know what you just learned, Josiah? You could have gotten punishment, but what you got was favor. You know, you've got something that you didn't deserve. Do you know what that is? He goes, what, Daddy? I said, that's grace. I said, now when your mommy comes home, tell her what you learned. So my wife walks in and she, he goes, Mommy, Mommy, I learned what grace is. So it just was a cool lesson. You know, it's, it's amazing. Even children can, can grasp the concept of grace, right? Grandma's happy that he didn't get spanked. But actually, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, if you're taking notes, 21, Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, there's a, a situation, a prescription for a disorderly son uh, or, or child. And what happens is uh, if you chastise, the, if you try to do discipline and, and the, the son doesn't respond to it and he's a, the Bible says he's a drunkard and a glutton and he does all these things, you can take him out to the city gates before the elders and they can stone him to death. If we applied that today, there'd be no uh, teenagers left, right? <laughs> Just kidding, the teenagers in the back. I'm offending everybody today, aren't I? The father had the legal right in this story, according to the law, the father had the legal right to come after this kid with anger, with judgment, and for shaming and dishonoring the family. He could have had him stoned to death. There's a practice that's actually still practiced now in the Middle East. There was actually a big expose on it called honor killings. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. And it's, it is different. I mean, it, it's the threshold of an honor killing is a lot lower. It could be on a rumor. So it's pretty, pretty harsh. It's not totally different from God's word, but uh, if they felt that a, a person dishonored the family, the family would get together and kill the member of the family that they felt was dishonoring the family to preserve the reputation of the family. Uh, it reminds me of uh, Heather and I, several years back, took in a young Iranian girl. We took her into our home. She did something to dishonor her family, and the father died, and the mother was here, and she was going to send her back to Iran, and they were going to deal with her and she wasn't going to come back. So, uh, and again, I knew about honor killings, and the girl explained to us what was going to happen. So we took her in, and we kind of harbored her until everything cooled down. But it's, it's, it's a practice that happens, you know? And this guy in this story had the right, based on the Old Testament law, to do this to his son. But the point here to get in the parable is we're all guilty before God. God has the right to do that to all of us. In uh, Romans 3, 
10 through 18, it says that all have sinned. We've all become unprofitable. We've all, our throats have become an open tomb. You know, we, we're just vile creatures because we're in sin and rebellion. We deserve judgment. But see, God is able to supersede that. But he's not breaking his own law. This is the amazing thing about God. We, God, God has a, well, we have a problem, really. God does, and he could just kind of wipe us out and start all over again. But our problem is we've sinned, we've rebelled against God, and God is perfect. And we don't meet his standard of, of perfection. So he has the right to judge us all. But he, he still judges us based on our sin. But what happens is he still satisfied judgment by paying the price of sin himself. So the judgment still came. It came in the form of the cross 2,000 years ago. But we get to uh, escape from that if we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So uh, it, it's a pretty great thing. Verse 25. It says, now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he, is, because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who was devoured, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. So some believe that the parables are only supposed to focus on one thing. And for the most part, that's true. Jesus has a theme that he's trying to you know, get to the people and he uses the parable to explain that. But here, there's too much, too many verses. You know, people think the prodigal son, the prodigal son, and everybody forgets about the older son. Well, uh, there's eight verses in here that sp specifically have to do with the older son, which is more than 40% of the parable. So this means something. There's something important here. And also couple it and take it in context with the prior dinner engagement that Jesus had with the religious leaders. And we see that the older brother's representation is something that we can't miss here. Contextually, and some people believe this, the older brother could represent the religious system who did a lot of works to please God, but their hearts weren't right towards him. And you can see that in the older son here. I did this, I did that, I did this, but he's holding resentment against his father for taking the younger brother back, and he's holding resentment against his younger brother because he didn't even say my brother. He goes, that son of yours. He won't even accept that, that this is his brother, right? Um, but these religious leaders, their appearance was stellar, but their hearts were wicked. And I think the application for us that we can take with this is jealousy and looking down on people. Sometimes in sinfulness we, have a, we, can, we can exhibit that behavior. But I see that the older brother represents legalistic, snobbish, self-righteous attitude of some Christians towards those of ill repute coming into the fold. I remember I filled in a speaking engagement at another church and they had a fellowship afterwards. And I met a lot of the different people. And one of the gentlemen came over to me and he was talking about how he liked, he, he thought my, my message was okay, but he didn't like the past two guest speakers. And the one he really didn't like was a guy who was a, a gangbanger. He went to prison and, uh, you know, he was in a gang and he, he got saved. He came out and he started sharing his, his testimony to the youth, trying to keep them off the streets and keep them all out of gangs. And the man said to me, and I'll never forget it, this man who was talking to me derided the speaker and he said, I don't want to hear garbage in the pulpit. He actually looked at this person because he had a past, 
Even though the guy came to Christ and was doing great things, he looked at him as garbage. That's pretty awful, don't you think? He didn't like the fact that this man, God cleaned up, and now God was using him to speak to these kids. So it's pretty bad. But, you know, people can even, sometimes people, they're no better than the animal kingdom. Um, Most of you know that my wife loves cats. Her answer to the stray cat problem in the neighborhood is to bring them all into our house. (laughs) I don't share that view, but... You know, we, we have our established cats. And the funny thing is they were all strays. But they're in the house long enough. There's, there's five now because one died. I'm trying to hold the line and not have six, but it's a battle. Anyway, you have your established cats in the house, you know, and, and they get to stay in the house long enough. They pick spots on the bed. That's like the royal portion of the, of the house. And uh, we, we brought in a new cat, a little cat. I lost that battle. And... Uh, most of the, for the first few months, that cat got smacked around by the other cats, you know? Seriously. It's like they were all strays, and they're looking down on this cat. I mean, they're animals, but you know what? Do we act any different sometimes? I just pray that, you know, we don't become catty in our walks towards other people. I tell my wife, if, if I die, she's going to take all the cats in, and they're going to call her the crazy cat lady on the corner. Well, she hears this, I'm in trouble. But those in the Christian culture sometimes, some, you know, I don't want to make more enemies here, but sometimes those in the Christian culture, they're in it for a long enough time and they can become self-righteous. They can become like that older brother. Personally, I'd rather be with people that appreciate God than with a culture of self-righteous, gossipy Christians who don't want to see other people come into the fold. Um, That's a problem. So, and you know what? There's other parables that ex- exemplify this. The parable of the, the day laborers, for lack of a better word. Uh, what happens is the, the landowner says to the guys in the morning, like, like 8 o'clock in the morning, I'll give you a denarius if you work in my fields. And they agree, okay, we'll take the denarius. And they go work in the fields. Noontime comes up, the, the landowner goes to a different group of people, I'll give you a denarius if you work from now until the end of the day. Hey, no problem. And then he goes to uh, some of the laborers who an hour or so until the end of the day, I'll give you a denarius if you work in my field. So come the end of the day, the, uh, the landowner is divvying out the money, and he gives it to all the people. And the guys who worked from early in the morning were upset. They're like, these guys only worked an hour. How come I'm only getting a denarius? And he's like, first of all, that's what you agreed to. And the denarius was a picture of salvation and blessings and other things like that. But second of all, you know, it's my denarius. I could do what I want with it. So again, it's a picture of the people who were laboring long and maybe a picture of Christians who have been Christians for a long time who are looking down on these people who get in maybe deathbed conversions or uh, somebody who comes in late in life and, you know, God blesses them anyway. Another parable is the Pharisee and the tax collectors. There's a lot of parables that really speak about this. You've got your Pharisee. Um, I'm well-educated. I wear fancy clothes. I'm a, a teacher of the law. I keep the Sabbath. I tithe. I'm a Pharisee. I'm great, Lord. Don't you love me? You know, and he's looking up at the Lord. And there's the, the tax collector. He can't even look up. He beats his breast and says, Lord, forgive me. I'm a, a lowly tax collector. I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, which one of those do you think is justified? Of course, it would be the tax collector, you know? So it's a tough message sometimes for people to hear, but it's, uh, unfortunately it does happen. In verse 32 it says, It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. Why the drama of using such extreme terms to talk about the younger brother? 
Did we see that the younger brother had a near-death experience? It doesn't say it in the story. The answer is because he was spiritually dead, and now he's alive again. He's come back from the dead. In the state he was in, and the state that we are in prior to being born again and not reconciled to the Father, we have no place to go except to experience judgment. Unfortunately, it's clear that many people walk the earth today as, as spiritual corpses. I don't know it's an awful thing to say, but they're dead and they don't even know it. Kind of reminds me of that movie with Bruce Willis, The Sixth Sense, where the boy could see people walking, roaming the earth, and they were dead, but they didn't know it. And unfortunately, that's kind of the way things are at times. And that should really give us, it should freak us out, first of all, but also give us a love for the lost. Our hearts should burn for the lost. Wherever we are, if it's at our jobs or family members or, I don't know, at a public event, just look around and look at all the people. How many of these people know Jesus? As a police officer, when I come on a scene and somebody's life is cut short at a young age, all I could think about is, did they know the Lord? Where are they right now? Because this is just a shell that I'm looking at. So, um, you know, it's also clear from Scripture that when people are reconciled back to the Father, their Creator, through Jesus Christ, they come back from the dead, and the bonus is they get to partake of eternal life. Not only does God woo us, but he also desires for us to be reconciled to him. He is so joyful about every soul that's saved that he can't contain himself. I mean, you, you saw it in both of these, these scriptures about how they, you would think that they would probably throw in a party in heaven. Can't, can't see it, can't hear it, but there's a big shebang going on every time one person comes to faith in God. And if that's foreign to you, then you need to come to him and see what it's like for God to love on you. Because Acts 2.21 says that all, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Nobody has to face judgment. If people face judgment, they choose to face judgment. Because God desires that all will be saved, right? And it's also good to enjoy what happens on this side of the fence. The assurance of salvation. Don't let anybody fool you. There's, there's places that preach, oh, you, you never know if God accepts you until you die. That's a lie. The Bible is very clear. First John tells us that we can know that we have eternal life. We can know, and that we continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So that's not presumptuous, that's a fact. I know that I'm saved because the Bible tells me that. Uh, you know, do you think that you're insignificant? Like, think about that coin, that one out of ten coin, that one out of a hundred sheep, that prodigal son of, or daughter. God goes as far as he can to find you. And um, this message may be one of those ways that he does it. Again, it's not me. It's the, it's the scripture context. I was just so excited about sharing this. And I'm like, Lord, help me to do this justice. Romans 10:17 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Well, you're hearing it. It's right here in the scripture. And the most powerful sovereign God that we serve, one thing, two, few things he can't do. He can't lie. He can't demean his character. He can't sin. And he can't force you into slavery to love him. Otherwise, that wouldn't be genuine love. There's a fine balance between God's part and our part when it comes to salvation. But you have to do your part. The Bible says, come, come to him. Call, call upon the name of the Lord. Receive, receive the goodness, partake, right? What is clear is that, again, when you become his, there's a big party in the heavenlies. That's right, for just one person. You know, there's a lot of stuff about self-esteem, but... You know, you, you look around, how many people are in this auditorium? You know, the, the bigger the crowd, the more insignificant you feel. Now think about, what are we, up to almost 6 billion people on the planet? Think about how God looks at you as an individual. You, you, you. Me? Yeah. You look up in God. When I pray at night, I know he's listening to me. I know that his attention isn't divided because you're all praying and he can't pay attention, right? 
God loves us as individuals. That is the ultimate self-esteem message. That's right here in this book, right? I bet you didn't realize that your life was that important, and I hope this encourages you. Now you know. The God of, he- uh, the God of all creation and the heavenly host can't contain themselves when you choose life. That is eternal life. Let's pray. Think about, what are we, up to almost six 